Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of January 28, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Fraudsters keep trying to give me money, and I keep refusing it. Moneybookers.com. That's a legitimate payment service along the lines of PayPal. It's British. Recently, I received what looked like a message from the service. They said they had $290.56 for me. But there were two immediate giveaways that this was just another run-of-the-mill hoax. First of all, the message came to an address I would never, ever use to register for anything. And second, it claimed that it was poker winnings. Well, I know enough not to play poker online, or offline for that matter. So it was obviously a hoax, but I decided to take a look a little bit deeper. It told me my money was waiting and gave me a link to click. The link claimed to actually go to moneybookers.com, but on closer examination, I saw that it went to an IP address. The IP address happened to be registered in Africa. Uh, the Ivory Coast, specifically. Last time I checked, the Ivory Coast was not part of Great Britain. You can see samples of this and an explanation of how I deconstructed it on the website. That's www.techbiter.com. The rogue site actually did a pretty good job of copying the original using the graphics from the original, right down to including warnings about rogue sites. For example, it said... The URL in your browser's address bar should begin with HTTPS and explain that HTTPS means that it's a secure site. Well, the URL did not begin with HTTPS. It also suggested that I had to have a padlock showing at the bottom right corner of the browser. Well, if I had been using Internet Explorer, true. I wasn't. I was using Firefox, and I knew where to look for the security feature there. But, of course, there was no security feature present. Moneybookers.com uses a touring number. You've probably seen these when you go to a website and you want to register for something. Actually, if you go to the Technology Corner website and you attempt to send a message to me through the site, you have to provide a number. The number changes each time. It's a random number that changes each time the page is reloaded. The reason this is done is to keep robots from filling out forms. It has to actually be a person who can deal with entering the number that's shown. The rogue site also used a Turing number, but there was a giveaway there, too. I reloaded the page a few times, and the number always turned up the same. And what I can't tell you is what the actual rogue site wanted. I don't know what's behind the closed door because I didn't go there. I suspect that it's probably nothing more than a standard identity theft come on, one that tries to get your name, your social security number, your address, credit card number, the credit card pin, your mother's maiden name, bank account details, and all that other information they can use, all under the guise, of course, of being able to securely identify you and then transfer your winnings to you. Uh, chances are your bank account will go down and not up if you follow this. But it could be worse. It could be a site that does all of those things and then also infects your computer so that the fraudsters can take it over and use it for whatever they want. So I didn't go any further. There's a new publishing program on the horizon. This one's an open-source program called Scribus. 
If you're a PageMaker user, it might be something you'll want to consider. But if you're still using Ventura Publisher, or you have modern versions of InDesign or even Quark Express, you're going to want to continue to use those. Publishing programs are particularly complicated bits of programming. The open source community hasn't yet shown that it's really capable of doing a creditable job in this area, at least so far. Scribus, when I loaded it to take a look at it, I found is a good bit less forgiving than commercial applications such as InDesign or Quark Express. For one thing, Scribus hasn't even been tested with Windows 98 or Windows ME. It doesn't support them. Developers say they will ignore bug reports relating to any version 9 of Windows or ME because a lot of the Scribus functions depend on features available only on Windows 2000 or Windows XP. Well, that's not really so bad because a lot of programs on Windows machines are now pulling support for those earlier operating systems. Scribus also requires GhostScript for EPS and PostScript import and printing. And the developers say that the program is very intolerant of poorly constructed or marginal grade fonts. So using any of the widely available free typefaces you can find on the web isn't recommended. And the developers also point out that Scribus is still beta software undergoing a lot of code changes. While it is fairly stable and usable, they said, caution is advised. It's not recommended yet for production use. The underlying file format is undergoing rapid changes and will not be finished until version 1.3.4 or 1.3.5. Well, that probably doesn't give you a lot of confidence in using Scribus for anything that is important. When the program starts for the first time, the startup process is a lot longer than it will be later because it needs to create a cache file of all the installed typefaces, and it disables any that it feels might be broken or problematic. So this is still an application in early development cycle. I'm not going to rule it out as an eventual contender, but certainly nobody's going to want to use it now in anything even remotely approaching a production environment. How many stores were open on Christmas Eve at 11 p.m.? Probably not too many. How many were open on Christmas Day? Again, not very many. What about online stores? This is something different. I received a message from Supermedia Store on December 22nd. Supermedia Store is an online operation I've used to get CDs, DVDs, laser toner cartridges, and things like that. The email was kind of the usual last-minute special leading up to Christmas, but I thought the approach was pretty clever. It had coupons for December 22nd, December 23rd, December 24th, and December 25th. Most brick-and-mortar stores were closed Christmas Day. Some are closed the day after. People want to be home with their families. Store owners don't want to be seen as inhuman ogres. They also don't want to pay quadruple or quintuple overtime, or whatever it is people get paid when they work on Christmas Day. But the web is there every day. A well-designed website doesn't need to have a lot of people running it, except for system administrators who keep an eye on servers and connections. So, apparently, what Supermedia Store thought is, what if we advertise some specials that are good only on Christmas Day, along with those last-minute specials? The logic is perfect. Most people are going to be home on Christmas Day. Many of those people will be using their computers on Christmas Day. A lot of the people who use their computers on Christmas Day from home have high-speed Internet access. 
Some of the people who use their computers from home on Christmas Day and have high-speed Internet access will be willing to place orders on Christmas Day if they get a bargain. Add to that the one-day-only specials for the 22nd, the 23rd, and the 24th. There may be other online store owners have done this. If so, I haven't received their messages. No matter how many store owners used this approach in 2006, I'm willing to bet that more people will use it when Christmas 2007 rolls around. There is little or no cost involved in creating the promotion, and the result will be sales on days that would otherwise have few sales. It doesn't require a lot of people to work on the holiday, so in short, it seems like a winner for everybody. Speaking of winners, this has nothing to do with technology, other than perhaps that the company in question uses some, but because sometimes I complain about poor service, bad service, or no service, I wanted to let you know about a company that provided uncommonly good service. JetBlue launched in 1999 as kind of a luxury budget carrier that connected New York with a lot of vacation destinations. The airline has been expanding since then. Columbus became part of the JetBlue network back in October 2006. The list of cities that JetBlue serves from Columbus is limited, but if you go where JetBlue goes, give them a try. Right now, the only non-stops are from Columbus to JFK and from Columbus to Logan in Boston. What's different about JetBlue? Well, there's a TV screen at every seat, and the seats themselves are both wider and have more legroom than most. I had an iPod with me for entertainment, but if I hadn't taken that along, I could have listened to XM radio, or I could have watched direct TV. Premium channels cost extra, and there is a credit card slot with each of those TV screens. And instead of pushing a cart that blocks the aisle just to serve drinks, the airline's attendants take orders, then return with a tray of drinks. Snacks are served from a wicker basket. It's different. JetBlue flies a combination of Airbus A320 and Embraer E190 jets. Now, you'll notice I didn't say Embraer regional jets. That's what the Brazilian manufacturer is known for. But the E190 is a larger plane. It's a twin-engine job with 100 seats, Range of 2,500 miles, not exactly a regional jet. Those TV screens I mentioned also report near real-time information about the plane's airspeed and altitude. Port Columbus, I learned, is about 795 feet above sea level, according to the display. JFK International is about 5 feet above sea level. Of course, Columbus travelers know that if you have a Wi-Fi-equipped computer, you already get free Internet access in Columbus... But if you're a JetBlue traveler, you get free Wi-Fi access in JFK's Terminal 6. I think that's the old TWA terminal, because that's where JetBlue is, and they install free Wi-Fi throughout the terminal. As I have in the recent past, when I went to New York this time, I stayed at a bed and breakfast in Harlem. This was one I had not stayed at before, Harlem 144 at 144 West 120th Street. Quick walk from the subway station at 116th, where I could catch a train down to the daily conferences that I was attending. If you haven't been to New York City for a while, you might want to know that the terminals at JFK are now connected to the A-Train subway station at Howard Beach, and also to the E, J, and Z trains, as well as the Long Island Railroad at Jamaica Station. The light rail air train is fully automatic. Reminds me a lot of the air train you'll find at Dallas-Fort Worth. 
It is free for travel between the terminals or to any of the long-term parking and hotel stops. You pay $5 when you exit at Howard Beach or Jamaica Station. That means the trip to the city costs all of 7 bucks, $5 for the air train, an extra $2 for the subway fare. You can't get into New York any cheaper. In nerdly news, Intel seems to be in the process of breaking the law. Moore's law, that is. That's the rule handed down by Intel's co-founder, Gordon Moore, that computer power doubles about every 12 months. He later amended that to every 18 months, and that law has held since about 1965. Now Moore says we're entering a new phase, claiming that not since the late 1960s have computer chips seen such dramatic improvements as their new 45 nanometer chips. Intel says it will be using new materials to build the insulating walls and switching gates of the 45 nanometer transistors and that the new generation of processors will contain hundreds of millions of transistors. Intel says it has five early version products up and running. The first 15 45 nanometer processors that are planned will be in the Core 2 Duo, Core 2 Quad, and Xeon families of processors. Processors continue to become larger and faster in a smaller package. Microsoft puzzles me sometimes. For a company that's as big as Microsoft is, I sometimes have to wonder if there is anybody in charge of examining projects for inherent stupidity. Apparently, Microsoft has no such person, judging from its recent plans to pay independent bloggers to correct Wikipedia articles and also its plans to give expensive laptop computers to bloggers. Somebody at Microsoft should purchase a dictionary and look up the meanings of a few words. They could start with independent and ethical. If Microsoft feels that articles in Wikipedia have done violence to its image, then it is Microsoft's duty and right to suggest changes. Instead of trying to secretly hire people to do the work for them, The company should have been above board and expressed its concern. And then there's that question of giving computers preloaded with Vista to bloggers. Most of the bloggers seem to think this is okay. I don't. In reviewing hardware and software, I am sometimes given evaluation copies of software. These rarely need to be returned because software has little value to the manufacturer once it's been installed on someone's machine. Hardware is different. Hardware can be sent on to other reviewers, or the company can sell it as refurbished. Hardware has intrinsic value. That's why hardware is almost always loaned for a review and not given. Organizations such as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have extremely strict written policies on how their reporters may receive products or services for testing and review. Most organizations, including TechBiter Worldwide, don't live up to their rigid ethical standards. But most of us also don't put ourselves in the position of accepting what looks like a quid pro quo. On the other hand, ethical companies don't offer them. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 28, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And you can send an email from there, too. Just remember the touring number.